So the reading this evening is from Romans. Uh, in the, the big Bibles, that's on page 1179. And on the, the smaller, thinner Bibles over there, uh, it's on page 793. And the passage we're looking at tonight is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. So starting off at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with the other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever points you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgments do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. As Christians, we talk about salvation, about being saved, Now, what do we mean? What do we think 
we are being saved from. Uh, why don't you turn to the person next to you and ask them, what do you think we are being saved from? This is not a rhetorical moment. This is, uh, introduce yourself if you don't know them. If you haven't got a clue, say, I haven't got a clue, I'm brand new. What are we being saved from? Okay. I want to play you a clip of audio uh, where there was an interview of people uh, in the United States. It was done at a Christian booksellers convention. So this is a convention of people who are about selling books in America. And someone went around and they asked this question, what are we safe from? So here's a little uh, vox pop of what they said. Saved, what are we saved from? Oh, wow. I'm not sure. I, that's a really good question. What are we saved from? I don't, I don't know if we are saved from anything. Uh, usually it's saved from our own foibles and uh, our own set of agendas. Uh, saved from uh, sin. Saved from death. Saved from the forces of evil. Saved from ourselves saved from cultural influence, but, you know, saved from the power of sin in our lives, saved from bondage to evil. I think most Christians, when they think about that, we're being saved from maybe a life of hardship, uh, but I don't think that's the biblical answer to that. I think we're saved from ourselves, we're saved from sin, we're saved from, uh, I think, the fact that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is, and that was the good news back in the first century. I think we're saved from ourselves and our totality and saved to newness of life in Christ ourselves um sin when christians talk about being saved what are we saved from in your view <laughs> this my realization now is saved from wasting life jesus said i came to give you have life abundantly now saved from our own self and selfish desires um of what we think is right which may not be right at all from ourselves well, i don't know i that's a tough question for me because everybody has a different perspective maybe on that. I, I tend to think I'm saved from my own self-centered actions and motivations that I'm the focus and center of life. We're saved from, oh boy. Ourselves. <laughs> all the, we would be without God. <laughs> all the brokenness that there is, sin. Saved from ourselves, saved from the sin that is in our heart and uh, given a new relationship with God. Uh, we are saved it's mostly from ourselves, uh, the pride that we have. Uh, he wants us to put, a, put aside our pride and bring a little more humility into our lives and follow him. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, being saved, I don't know. That's kind of one of those Christian words that we've uh, thrown in there over the years. So I would say that uh, saved from ourselves. All right, did you do better than that? The purpose of this evening series is to get clear on what we mean by the Christian gospel. And as the clip indicates, there is increasing lack of clarity about the matter in the United States and I think in the UK. I hope you noticed that there was a gaping hole in the answer that the people gave to that question. There was a gaping void of an answer. And I hope that you realize that what we are ultimately safe from is God's judgment. That's the ultimate reality that we are saved from. And what I wanted to do this evening is to give a biblical overview on these two important 
biblical terms that we need to understand if we're really going to get the Christian gospel clear. Uh, understanding the word sin and understanding the word judgment. Now tonight I'm not going to give an exposition of Romans 1.18 through to 2.5. That will be for another occasion. I'm going to give more of a lecture about these two key doctrines. Uh, a few weeks ago we started off with this important, crucial uh, foundation stone that we need to understand before we get into the gospel, and that is that, uh, that God is the creator, that uh, he is the loving ruler of the world. He made the world, he made us rulers of the world under him, and uh, over two weeks we looked at that, and looked at that statement from Revelation 4 verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And then Graham Shearer began to help us a few weeks ago about this idea of sin. That uh, we all reject the rule of God by trying to run life our own way without Him. But the problem with that is that we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world. And that verse from Romans 3, verse 10 to 12, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Now, uh, I kind of want to go back over this territory a little bit because this is a doctrine that is so often misunderstood. When I share the gospel with people the, uh, in a one-to-one context, and I've sort of laid it out, and I've basically come to summarize the point that there's only two ways to live, where we basically uh, continue on living life uh, for ourselves, or that we uh, submit our lives to Jesus and rely on his death and resurrection. Uh, and I say, where are you? Almost inevitably, they say, well, I'm in the middle. I'm not one or the other. I'm in the middle between trusting Jesus and trusting myself. And the reason that people give that answer is because they do not understand the essence of sin. This is a very unique teaching. Do you realize that? That we have as Christians. No other religion, no other teaching out there has this. And so it's very hard for people to get it. And it's crucial that we do understand what the Bible has to say about sin. There are some key concepts that we need to understand. Firstly, the nature of sin. People think of, of, of sin as rule-breaking often, uh, as, as, as breaking individual sins of, of specific acts, uh, stealing or uh, murdering someone or something like that. And that's the sort of definition you find if you go and look into a regular um, dictionary. I looked at the compact Oxford dictionary. It says this for sin, an immoral act considered to violate divine law. I think that's how many people think of it. Sin is basically doing wrong things against God's law. And so with a definition like that, then people can end up feeling quite good about themselves. Because really, although most people are are willing to admit that they do transgress from time to time, they also manage to keep some of the rules as well. You know, they don't steal all the time. Uh, They don't commit adultery all the time, and so on. And so most people regard themselves as doing okay and as having basically a reasonable chance with God by that definition. But that's not really how the Bible understands sin in its fundamental way. You see, the individual acts are the symptoms of the problem. But the problem is far more profound and and one that we all share. Uh, As the Two Ways to Live track puts it, uh, we all reject the ruler God by trying to run life our own way without him. I want to acknowledge my wholesale dependence on Tony Payne tonight. 
who's the, one of the guys who uh, put this course together. And if Tony ever listens to this, thanks, Tony. It's a great talk. Uh, but you see, as that summary of we all reject the rule of God, that is the essence of sin. It is rejection of God. It's rebellion against him. It's stepping out from under his rule and declaring independence from God. It's saying that we wish to run things our own way and not his way. And this is the disease. Uh, The individual acts are just the symptoms. But the disease is rebellion against God. And it's in every human heart. Sin is defined in 1 John 3 verse 4 um, as lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Not law-breaking. Actually, it's more than that. It's actually law-making. You make up your own laws. You live as though you are outside the law, above the law, uh, beyond God, master of your own domain. That is the essence of sin. It is lawlessness. And Romans chapter 1, some of which was read to us tonight, paints a very similar picture. It's not so much individual acts of wrongdoing, but it is a decision on our part to, to deny and suppress the truth about God. Uh, some people say they're atheists. I think they're uh, like the person in the swimming pool holding the ball down underneath the water. It's constantly wanting to pop up. They're trying to suppress the truth, the reality that God is there. It is a decision to do that, to treat and live as if God was not there. And this yields all sorts of consequences in terms of our behavior. That's why in Romans 3, verse 10 to 12, it illustrates it perfectly. There is no one righteous. That means there's no one right with God. Not even one, the Bible says. That is a stunning statement about humanity, isn't it? There is not one person right with God. Not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. This is all about turning away from God. It is about a rift in relationship with God that we have initiated and that we keep on sustaining as well. That's the essence of sin. And the point is, it is also universal. Another point coming up, Bally. We all reject the rule of God. We all do it by trying to run life our own way. Uh, Romans 3, if we were to keep reading on, uh, uh, thank you, Johnny, for reading. If we were to keep reading on from Romans 2 and into Romans 3, we come across this statement that all of us, Jew or Gentile, all of us are like are under sin. All of us are. This is written throughout the New Testament. You can read it in Romans 5, verse 12 to 18. Or think about this one, 1 John 1, verses 8 to 10, which basically says if we claim to be without sin, we're not only self-deceived, but we're calling God a liar because we all sin. This is a unique and realistic view of the world. The Bible says this, that all men are liars. This is not a feminist statement. It includes women as well. Uh, All men and women are liars. This is the truth that everybody knows in their heart. It is demonstrably true that all of us have told porky pies. All of us are in context where we've told lies. All people can and do tell lies. But it's only Christianity that has this negative but correct view of humanity. Let's think about some of the consequences of our rebellion. The major consequence is that we find ourselves under the wrath of God. And we're going to think about that in a moment as we think about judgment. Uh, 
But the immediate consequence of our rebellion is that we fail to rule. We fail to rule ourselves or society or the world around us. We declare autonomy from the rightful ruler God and we set up our own tin pot rebellion. And uh, the, bottom is, the bottom line is we make a mess of it. We make a terrible mess of trying to behave and act as if we are God. We fail in a number of areas. We fail to control ourselves. Because in rebelling against God, in fleeing from his government, we actually find ourselves under the rule of another. We don't find ourselves ruling our own lives. We find ourselves being ruled by another. And that's under the rule, uh, the Bible says, of the evil one. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, shall we? Let's keep, uh, keep you awake and keep your fingers moving. Uh, Ephesians, see if I can find it now. It's tough when you're up front here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, I think you'll find that on page 1174 in these red Bibles. It puts it very clearly. Ephesians 2, verse 1, page 1174. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Pretty serious statement. We were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Because of being under sin, the Bible says, uh, we have put ourselves away from God and under the rule of the devil. Now, you might find that quite a humorous notion if you're coming in as an outsider, not a Christian. But I wonder, how much are you really in control of your life? your emotions, of your desires, of what you're doing. Are you really in control of it all? See, under, under sin, our nature has changed, the Bible says. This again is demonstrably true. We let ourselves down constantly. We're about to approach the new year, make all those new resolutions that will make it about a week, a month, a day, because we have great intentions and we consistently let ourselves down. Having bought the lie that God is not God, having set up our own kingdom, it seems that everything we try to do just ends up wrong. And even when we recognize that something is the right thing, we still find it at times impossible to do. That's exactly what it says in Romans chapter 7. The good that I want to do, I, I find I can't do. And so our relationships go wrong, including our marriages. You know, you love each other. It should be perfect, shouldn't it? Then why is marriage so difficult? And if you're single thinking it's the Nirvana land, wake up and, and, and smell the coffee. Marriage is tough. You find that this perfect person is just as imperfect as you. And marriages go wrong. Relationships go wrong. You see, outside of the Garden of Eden, divorce becomes the reality. Hostility, the battle of the sexes, the battle between men and women. Secondly, we all become alienated from each other in society. We fail to control society. We look around us and every key in our pocket tells us that we're sinners. Every key in your pocket. Every time you open the door, why do you lock your house? Why do you have passwords for your internet banking? Oh, people are basically good. Great, just keep it open and free. And what that? Now, every little password, every key, 
Every door that you bolt tells you that we cannot control society. Within a few verses of being ejected from the garden in Genesis, humanity has its first murderer. That's society. We're messed up. But we're also alienated actually from the ground itself, the Bible says. This is how serious the disruption of sin is. Uh, those who love to garden find that there is a never-ending job as weeds and thorns and thistles. Farming is hard work, hard labor. The ground uh, actually will end up killing us as we try and draw bread from it. We're alienated from the ground itself. And also, the Bible says, we're alienated from the world as a whole. Uh, Romans 8 uses this language that the whole world is groaning in frustration. It is groaning in futility. Isn't that the world you see around you? The endless futility of life? The frustrations that are there? Romans 8 says this, that the whole earth is waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay. You know, you put an apple out, what happens? It's pretty got, it's got maggots if you give it enough time. Everything's decaying. Our bodies are decaying. This world is decaying. It is all demonstrably and obviously true just by looking around us. The world is falling apart. Society is so fragile, it is racked by evil and corruption and our own lives if we're honest, are no better. This is the Bible's view of sin and its nature. And um, we have to say it is a radical view. It's a unique view. But I think it is the one that makes most sense of the world that I see. But of course, there are alternatives. Let's consider the alternatives. Here's one. This is the most common. The one that says we are all good. We are all good. This is the one commonly held by uh, humanism, secular humanism, that humanity is really good at heart. I'm sure you've heard this. Uh, it flies in the face of history, of experience, and not to mention every 10 o'clock news that I watch. And the most common form of this view is that something outside of us in society or perhaps in our childhood is really responsible for the wrong things I do. The reason that the world is messed up is not me. It, it, it's the way I was raised. It was my parents. It was the, it's the society that has corrupted me. You know, I, I, we come into the world innocent, good at heart, and all these corrupting influences are, are the problem. It's not me. Blame the system. Now, let's think about that for the moment. What is society? It's basically made up of lots of people, isn't it? And if people are all basically good... It's a fair question to ask then, well, where did the evil society come from? If we're all basically good, and that's what society is, well, where did this evil come from? If it's made of, up of entirely good people, that's a bit strange. And our parents, if they were the ones who really messed us up, why did they do that if they were really good people themselves, deep down in their hearts? Now, Jesus points us to the, to the truth. He gives the real diagnosis, doesn't he, in Mark chapter 7? He says this, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. It's not the forces outside us that make us uh, sin and do wrong. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, all these evils come from inside. And that's what makes us unclean. 
the humanist alternative in all its forms which denies this reality of human sinfulness and tries to assert that we're really only made evil by forces outside of us is really very hard to sustain, I think. But here's another view, another alternative. It's sincerity that, what, that, 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 that really counts. Provided people are sincere, they'll be okay, goes this line. And it's saying, really, there's, there's no objective standard out there. Um, you've done the right thing if you sincerely believed that you were doing the right thing. This is a, an excuse some of the times our public officials come out with. I, I was genuinely, I believed I was doing the right thing. Now, is that, is that a good response, a good alternative? Do we really want to say that Adolf Hitler was right because he sincerely believed in his course of action? Do we really want to say that the doctors of the 18th century um, were right when they sincerely believed that bleeding their patients would cure them? They were very sincere. There was a lot of bleeding going on. Sincerity is a good indication of something. It's an indication that you are sincere. It's got nothing to do with right or wrong. And amongst those out there who believe in the existence of sin, there are also some other alternatives to the biblical position. There's the 50% alternative. Have you come across this? Uh, Basically, these are the people who don't understand that sin is rebellion against our maker. They see it as entirely about breaking individual rules. And this in turn leads to this view that if we manage to break 50%, we might make a pass with God and be allowed into heaven. If we only break 50%, we're going to be okay. God grades on a pass, a basic pass. And related to this idea is the idea that uh, although we do sin, we're not entirely bad. There is still some spark of goodness in each one of us that can be fanned into flame. That All we need to do is nurture it, nurture that spark, perhaps by attending church. That will be good. Get some good morals. Send our children to church. Give them morality. Uh, or maybe um, send them to the country and live the country life. Or uh, get into arts. That will elevate the soul and will fan into flame this spark of goodness. And that will be enough to make us righteous, to make us acceptable before God. Now, down through the centuries, people, some people have tried to argue that very view. Uh, more often than not, the church has called that heresy. The Bible is quite clear, and we read it there in Ephesians 2. It is not that our souls are sick, needing some therapy, needing a bit of medicine, a bit of encouragement. It is that we are dead. There isn't much you can do for a dead body. We are spiritually dead before God, dead in our transgressions and sin, and we desperately need new life to be breathed in from the outside. That's our only hope. And if sin is fundamentally rebellion against our Creator, then this is what must be fixed. Not just incremental improvements in certain moral actions. Uh, We need our relationship to be restored. That's what we need. And if it's not, we're still stuck in our sin and rebellion, irregardless of how many old ladies we, we help across the road. It doesn't matter how many good things you do if you're basically in rebellion against God. That's the problem. The relationship is broken. Now, in conclusion, the essence of the biblical doctrine of sin is that our relationship with God has been fractured, and we have done the fracturing. We initiated it, and we sustain it, the Bible says. We reject the rightful rule of God 
over us as our creator. And that expresses itself in, in, in a whole manner of actions and thoughts and attitudes that are contrary to God's ways. It is a rebellion against the rightful rule of our maker. Now, let me take a sip of water. You stretch a little bit. Another notion that our world finds very peculiar to accept is that God will do anything about this rebellion. He really doesn't want to have anything to do with this. And yet it is an essential and important aspect of the gospel that we know and understand this, that God uh, can do something, God has done something, God will do something about our human rebellion against him and the reality of God's judgment. Uh, the, the, the two-way track puts it like this. God won't let us rebel forever. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. And this verse from Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once. Well, we know that. But then this is what the verse tells us. We're destined to die once and after that to face judgment. This notion of judgment is so unpopular, isn't it? It is so distasteful. I don't know whether you watched... Uh, any of the videos, or we went to the debates with uh, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins that took place. Uh, I listened to the ones that John Lennox did with them. John did an outstanding job, I thought. And what struck me was the thing that they often mocked the most was the whole notion, not only that we should believe that there is a God, but the whole notion that we believe that we're accountable to God. This was the most distasteful thing. That even if God existed, that God would even care about our sexual ethics. They mocked it. This is such an unpalatable, such a distasteful thing. But we need to not be cowed by this mocking tone. We need to be clear about judgment. We need to be unembarrassed about explaining ourselves. It is a vital component that we need to grab hold of if we're going to understand the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Do you know the strange thing is this? The world wants justice. The world wants judgment. Didn't we see it in this past week? All the protests that took place because uh, Radovan Karadzic felt that he didn't want to turn up to his court date uh, for these crimes of um, genocide. He decided he wasn't going to turn up, and so they cancelled the first day because he wasn't going to turn up. And there was an outcry. How can you say, I'm not going to turn up to judgments? That's outrageous. We demand justice. That is our cry, is it not? And what we need to show people is that what we want deep in our hearts is what God is promising to do. People around us really want judgment. You can tell this uh, from everyone, from the smallest child to the most cynical adult, uh, when they say this, that's not fair. That's not fair. But when we have a kid and they start talking, it doesn't take long before they say that. That's not fair. And even the most cynical person will often say this, that's just not fair. Whenever we say that, whenever we say that's not right, something should be done about this, we're making an appeal to something outside of ourselves, to some standard of justice. And we are longing for something or someone to put things right. We want to judge. We want someone who will bring justice. And even though the world doesn't want to acknowledge it, we really do want judgment, or as it's called today, accountability. That's the buzzword, isn't it? We want accountability. But of course, only um, 
we, the world only wants it on their terms and in rather limited selected areas. Now, the, from the point of view of the gospel, it is essential that we talk about judgment. Without God's wrath on sin, Jesus' death is really very hard to explain. In fact, it would seem pointless. The death of Jesus would seem utterly pointless without God's wrath and judgment being the reason for why he went there to die. Let's think about some key concepts about God's judgment then. Firstly, the Bible teaches that God punishes in history. The Bible says this, that God punishes and judges humanity in present human experiences. Experience. He judges us now in space and time and history. It began, of course, with the punishment of Adam and Eve, so that we are now living outside the garden in a world that is under judgment. And thus our world itself is subject to this curse of futility, as Romans 8 puts it. It is in bondage. It is waiting liberation. We live in a world of earthquakes, of tornadoes, of tsunamis and floods, a world that is in bondage and frustration and futility. And all these tragedies are shouting out to us that this is a sin-cursed world under God's judgment. Part of God's judgment is that he has cursed the world. So this is the world that is perfect for rebel sinners. And everything in it shouts out to us. This is not the way it should be. Something is terribly wrong. We're experiencing God's judgment. You can go to the book of Isaiah. You can see God's judgment is expressed through human agents. The pagan king Cyrus in Isaiah 45 is portrayed as God's agent of judgment. God calls Cyrus as pagan king his servant to bring judgment. You can read in Romans 13 how human governments are set by God, given authority. They are seen as agents of God's judgment to punish those who do wrong. Our civil authorities are given that authority by God, agents of his judgment. God's judgment and wrath can also be seen as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians. There, Paul says that some of you are, there's a reason why you're, some of you are sick. It's because of the way you're treating the body when you get together. God is judging. God's judgment and wrath can be experienced um, is seen, I guess, very profoundly these days, as uh, in the language of Romans 1 that was read to us earlier, where basically God hands us over to our sinful choices. He says, okay, you want to uh, do your own rules, your own sexual ethics, your own way of doing things, I'll hand you over to the consequences of them. And we begin to see the full experience of pain and suffering and disease and death uh, of our choices as God hands us over. That is an expression of God's ongoing present-day wrath and judgment, it says in Romans 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed right now as people pair the terrible uh, realities of the choices that they've made. Here's the big one. The reality of death. The reality of death in mortality is, is a constant reminder of the impact of sin, of God's judgment upon us. Romans 6 verse 23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. 
Romans 5.12 says this, Sin and death have come into the world through Adam and spread to all of us because all have sins. We're not inherently immortal. We never were. It's not that sin and rebellion took that uh, away from us. It's because we've been denied access to the tree of life. And so death has come to us. However, even though death is the punishment of sin, the Bible also says that there is an existence beyond death and that God's judgment takes place in that realm as well. That's what Hebrews 9.27 says, isn't it? Just as uh, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. There is a judgment after we die. Jesus said this, We should be afraid, not of those who can kill the body, but of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now Jesus was the most loving person there ever was, and he wants us to know that there is a terribly serious reality. There is the possibility that we can lose body and soul in hell. And the third concept of God's judgment that we see in the Bible is that God will be the judge at the end of the world. Uh, Romans 2 verse 5, it was in our reading, speaks of the day of wrath. We don't believe that life is a circle that keeps on turning. We believe that life is a straight line and there is a terminal point and that is the day of judgment. The day of wrath. Acts 17.31 says this, uh, For he has set a day, for God has set a day, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Resurrection day is a wake-up call because resurrection day is judgment day. Judgment day is coming. And the first resurrected man will be our judge. A day is coming when not only individuals, but the whole created order will be judged. A day of reckoning, the Bible says. A day of destruction. Listen to this language of 2 Peter chapter 3. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. But for now, there's a delay before that's happening. And the reason for that delay is given in the first, just before that, in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As so understand slowness, he is patient with you. Listen to this. This is is God in his amazing grace to you today if you're not yet a Christian. God is being patient with you today. Not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone come to repentance. The reason it's not judgment day today is because he is graciously holding out the opportunity of amnesty and forgiveness today to you. God is holding in his patience back that flood of anger and judgment so that we can repent. But of course, if you read 2 Peter 3, it says that we as sinful people, we presume on the patience of God. In fact, we we scoff and say, well, it hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen. Well, that's what the Bible teaches about judgment. What are the alternatives? Well, here's the most common. There's no judgment. And uh, there's different forms of that. Here's a popular one. Well, you see, Paul, God is a God of love. Uh, This is the objection to judgment. 
Because God is a God of love. He, he's not the kind of God who would ever judge anyone or send them to hell. I once heard Oprah Winfrey on the, uh, one of her shows say that uh, she attended a Baptist church until the pastor got up there one day and said this. And she's, she walked out. She said, oh, I can't believe in such a God. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. It's, it's as if it's impossible. It's as if it's inconsistent in some way for God to be both loving but also to be the judge. But of course, this, this totally misunderstands uh, both love and judgment. Love is not the opposite to judgment. It, 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 love is not the opposite to wrath, is it? Indifference is the opposite to wrath. Uh, when you don't care about the right thing, when you don't want to do anything about injustice, when you sit back and let evil triumph, how is that love? That's not love. Next week, Remembrance Sunday, we're going to remember those who bravely would not allow evil to continue. And out of love, they went and fought and died. That's love, isn't it? To care about injustice. To care enough about people that you want to see that justice is done. A loving parent loves his child enough to discipline them and punish them. Do you ever watch that show about nannies? Oh, what monsters they're out there. What monsters created by their parents who refuse to touch their little darling. But of course, if you really love your little darling, occasionally you will touch them in a more direct fashion, perhaps. Not in any way that will leave any permanent damage. We're clear about this. But they're one that would make an impact. Because we love them and we want to discipline them. You see, it is the indifferent parent, the parent who doesn't care anything about the child, who just lets the kid become feral. In the end, love without justice is just mushy, useless sentimentality, isn't it? And of course, as we talk about the anger of God, we must not misrepresent it. Uh, the Bible is clear. He is slow to anger. Quite unlike us. We're quick. God is slow to anger. And his anger is not spiteful or hasty. It's not as if God is losing his temper. See, unlike our anger, his, his is always righteous. It's always the perfect, uh, the perfectly appropriate response to sin. It's always the right response to evil, his, his judgment and his wrath. But neither must we give ground to this idea that there's no judgment. Because that just reduces life and morality to meaninglessness, doesn't it? If we're not accountable, if we're not responsible beings, then nothing that we do really matters. I've forgotten where I read it, but uh, one man was taking care of... Um, I think it was handicapped children. Uh, the Gestapo were coming in the Second World War to kill them all. And the man who was trying to protect the kids, all he could say was, do you not fear God? My friends, if there's no fear of God, there is no hope of justice. What else could have held them back? Our actions do matter. There is accountability. There is a God who will judge evil and wrongdoing. 
There's a second choice, universalism. This is the view that there are many roads and many paths and all lead to the same destination. And the uh, problem with that, I guess, is it's half true. Yes, everything does lead to Judgment Day. That's right. Um, there's a part of it, too, that uh, I, I understand entirely. It's this, this desire to see everybody saved. I think it is a good and godly desire. Uh, God himself, it, it makes it clear, he does not take delight in the death of a sinner. He doesn't desire the death of a sinner. But the Bible is quite clear that not everyone will be saved. And we all know people who've gone to their, their deathbed, shaking their puny fists at God, saying, I will not have you. I will not have your son. No, not all will be saved. Universalism is a denial not only of the, the reality of judgment, but the need of judgments. It's a denial of the doctrine of sin, the, the nature of human rebellion. It does not see all of humanity as having rebelled and that we need salvation from outside. It sees uh, all of uh, humanity as being on a quest to find God by various means. And it is an entirely too optimistic view of human nature. But you see, if the diagnosis is true, that we are rebels against God. And if the prognosis is also true, that if we continue in rebellion, uh, then we will get what rebels deserve. If, if that is true, then judgment must be preached, mustn't it? It would be so unloving for us not to warn people that there is a day of judgment. I'm warning you today, if you're not a believer, there is a day of judgment. It must be preached. So in conclusion, that we understand the judgment of God, it's so clear that we get what it's about. It's so clear that we're not afraid of it. We don't back off from it against all this climate of disdain and mockery. We need to be able to speak clearly about it without any embarrassment. See, judgment does not come out of the blue. It is not arbitrary. It is the inevitable consequence of God being the loving ruler of the world because he made the world and because, secondly, that we as human beings have rebelled against the good creator. Every good gift we have given, been given by God, and yet what do we do with it? See, the reality of judgment follows logically from that. Without judgment, without accountability, then our actions are without meaning. There's no good or bad. We live in a world where might is right. Without the concept of the reality of judgment as God's response to rebellion, then the truth is God's other response, that of mercy through his Son, just makes no sense whatsoever. When there's no judgment, there's no mercy, and so there's nothing to be forgiven. It is crucial that we understand this doctrine of judgment. Next week, Mes McConnell is going to come and speak about the cross. How cro the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the total solution to God's wrath. But I wouldn't want you to leave today and not know the answer. So I'm going to stay down here. And if you are concerned about the judgment day of God, if you're concerned that you're still in your sins, you're still in rebellion against God, come and speak to me. I want to share with you more fully the good news about Jesus. I don't want you going home tonight without knowing that. But next week, we're going to look more fully at that. Let's pray, shall we?